Episode of the Athletic Business Podcast. My name is Jason Scott, and today on the show, we're joined by Brian Kappel, partner with the law firm Lightfoot, Franklin, and White. Brian and I had a chance to discuss the NCAA independent accountability resolution process and the subject of NCAA compliance more broadly. It's an interesting conversation. You'll hear a little bit about the history of the new IARP, as well as how institutions are responding, and advice for your own athletic department when it comes to NCAA compliance. We'll get right to my conversation with Brian right after a quick break. Athletic Business Magazine is a trade publication that 40,000 athletics, fitness, and recreation professionals rely on to find the tips, trends, and products they need to be successful. Want to join? Head on over to athleticbusiness.com slash subscribe to get started or renew your free subscription. Brian Kappel, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Uh, I'm hoping that you can maybe, uh, we can start our discussion by you just kind of filling us in a little bit on your background. How did you kind of become interested and involved in NCAA compliance? Uh, well, I started out as a college athlete, uh, played baseball at Princeton University under Scott Bradley, our head coach. Um, following college, played a few years in the Seattle Mariners minor league system um, mm-hmm. and retired from that career to go straight into law school, um, where I always knew I wanted to keep one foot in the uh, college sports world, um, but wasn't quite sure how to do that. And came across uh, the firm I'm at right now, Lightfoot, Franklin & White, that had a very strong uh, collegiate compliance program uh, that was led by William King, another, a lawyer here who's now currently working for the Southeastern Conference. Mm-hmm. Um, I started here in 2011 um, and began working with him on representing institutions, uh, college coaches, and, and student-athletes. And have been doing that ever since. That's great. Yeah, what a, what a what a story that is. I mean, going from uh, playing baseball and uh, spending some time in the minors to to working, you know, professionally, um, you know, on the on the legal side. What a, what a what a background that is. Yeah, it's um, not always necessary to have a, a college sports background in this field, but it certainly does help when you're uh, <laughs> speaking to student athletes. You know, understand a little bit more about what they're going through. That's right. Um, so for some of our listeners who may be unfamiliar, I'm I'm hoping that maybe you can provide us with a little bit of background on this new NCAA independent accountability resolution process. Sure. And I'll, I'll refer to that as the IARP. Um, yeah, definitely a mouthful there. (laughs) Yes. Uh, so the NCAA infractions or enforcement process has been around for, for many years. And, and uh, a lot of folks are, are relatively familiar with how that works. There's a committee on infractions. There's an enforcement staff that, that investigates potential uh, infractions, rules infractions, and, and allegations of rules infractions. Um, and over some period of time, institutions that were going through that traditional enforcement process started to believe that maybe it wasn't quite as independent or as fair as they would have liked. And that's um, something that came to a head right around the time of the uh, men's basketball uh, raids by the FBI, um, those criminal charges, and and a lot of the information that came out uh, during those uh, trials. Um, The NCAA responded to that by appointing the um, Rice Commission. Uh, I think it's actually the independent um, commission uh, on on college sports, but it's been referred to as Condoleezza Rice's commission. Uh, they came out with a report that 
reflected a lot of the frustrations that institutions and coaches had been having with the traditional enforcement process. Uh, among those, those problems were the feeling that the enforcement uh, infractions process was not independent enough, that there was too much interplay between the Committee on Infractions and the um, enforcement staff and the other uh, members of the NCAA staff in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so one of the suggested fixes for that was to create a separate enforcement process um, that was far more independent, that involved investigators and decision makers who were outside of the NCAA. Um, and that's where the IARP comes from. Um, it, it was born out of this Rice Commission report. Um, and the hope for the Rice Commission, uh, hope from the Rice Commission, I should say, should say, was that this would be a process that would, uh, that would feel more fair, that would have more due process involved in it, um, that institutions could understand that, um, you know, however they were previously seen by the enforcement staff or the Committee on Infractions, this would be a clean slate for them. Um, right. and so that's where it comes from. Right. And you kind of touched on this actually just in that last answer, but uh, can you maybe just outline a little bit more um, how this process differs from previous uh, enforcement policies and procedures? Sure. In the traditional enforcement uh, process, you will have a member of the incident enforcement staff assigned to investigate your case. Usually it's a team of individuals from the enforcement staff, um, you know, going from the managing director down to an assistant director of enforcement. Um, and those folks will um, notify school that they're under investigation. That's called the notice of inquiry. And then proceed to conduct uh, interviews, request documents, review those documents, um, all uh, culminating sometimes in a notice of allegations. That's a, um, a, a document stating, here's what we believe happened and here are the rules that were violated. Mm -hmm. uh, the institution has an opportunity to, to participate in that investigation. They can respond to a notice of allegations, and ultimately the decision is made um, by the Committee on Infractions whether violations occurred and what the punishment is. Um, mm -hmm. NCAA, over many years, has, has tried to um, streamline that process and come up with uh, more consistent penalties, but that's the traditional enforcement process. The IARP differs in the fact that once a case is referred to the IARP, um, it is then dealt with by what's called the complex case unit. And a complex case unit involves one member or, or maybe a few members of the enforcement staff who was assigned mm -hmm. to the case originally. Uh, but it also involves an outside investigator um, who's chosen by the IARP uh, oversight board. And it also involves an outside um, advocate, somebody who will eventually argue that case to the infractions, uh, sorry, the independent uh, body that, that hears these cases and decides the, uh, the punishments. Mm -hmm. um, so the inclusion of this outside investigator and this outside advocate are what really makes the IARP different from a structural standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, it's, it differs from the traditional infractions process in that in a, if a case enters the IARP, uh, the penalties are um, increased substantially for institutions and individuals. Um, and, and more importantly, for institutions, individuals, there's no opportunity for appeal. Once the, um, the resolutions panel makes its decision, that decision is final and there's no op option to um, ask another body to take another look at it, to re-review the evidence, to check and make sure that the penalties are appropriate. That's mm -hmm. available in the infractions process uh, via a body called the, the uh, Infractions Appellate Committee, the IAC. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not available in the IARP. It's a lot of acronyms mm -hmm. out there. 
Right. Yeah. Definitely a lot of letters to, to juggle. Sure. Uh, I, I'm curious, um, are, are there like specific criteria, I guess, that um, cases may meet for getting referred to the IARP? Like, are, or is it kind of on a case by case basis? Does it kind of uh, depend based on, you know, a school's particular stance on a, uh, an investigation? Um, or how does that kind of play out? Uh, there are a set of criteria uh, for cases to be referred to the IARP. And there's actually mm -hmm. um, a, a referral panel that deals with these referrals. Referral case can be referred to the IARP through one of three mechanisms. Um, the vice president of enforcement, who's uh, currently John Duncan with the NCAA, can refer the mm -hmm. case. Um, the institution can request that the case be referred. Um, or if it gets all the way to a committee on infractions, the chair of the committee on infractions uh, can ask that a case be referred. Um, once a case is referred, it goes to this referral committee uh, who then decides pursuant to a list of factors whether the case is appropriate for the IARP. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the factors are relatively broad. They involve things like the case being one of paramount importance to the membership. And it involves uh, an important issue um, to the member institutions. Um, it involves serious allegations of misconduct. Uh, there is some question about whether the institution or involved individuals are cooperating appropriately. Mm -hmm. um, so if there's some level of antagonism between the enforcement staff and the institution, uh, that can also lead to the case being uh, referred. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are a number of other factors based on you know, the type of allegations that are at issue um, that, that would lead a case to be referred to the IARP. And, and generally, once it gets to that level, you kind of, um, you, earlier on, you kind of touched on some of the drawbacks, like there's no opportunity for an, an institution uh, to appeal drawbacks, I guess, from the institutional level. Um, and the consequences for, you know, if they are found to have committed these uh, infractions can be uh, more severe. But um, I guess on the, on the flip side, the benefit is that, you know, it's this independent process. So like you kind of, uh, is, that, is that a fair way to kind of understand the Yes. So the, uh, as originally conceived, the IARP was supposed to be um, uh, kind of an off-ramp is what they call it at the NCAA headquarters uh, for specific cases that would um, both increase due process, um, but also increase the severity uh, of any penalties that applied. Um, in addition to that, and I, I should probably mention this, um, one of the supposed benefits of the IARP was, was going to be speed. Um, by having an outside investigator um, hired specifically for this case, uh, they were supposed to go through these significant cases, cases that involved a lot more documents than a regular infractions case or a lot more witnesses, whatever it may be. They're supposed to be able to do this faster um, mm -hmm. and get to a resolution quicker. Uh, again, one of the major complaints with the traditional enforcement uh, process is that it's too slow. Mm -hmm. um, the IRP to date has not been uh, as, I think, as, as fast as, as the folks who envisioned it would have liked. Um, it has involved a number of uh, what I call reinvestigations by the complex case unit. Uh, I should mention that when the case goes to the complex case unit, the CCU, uh, they have an opportunity to look at the file as it currently exists. Uh, if the enforcement staff has done work already, they can look at that work. Then they come up with a plan as to how they're going to uh, complete the additional work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. um, and then they get to set and, and, and go out and actually do that work. Um, you know, the idea was that the CCU would be um, well-funded, fully staffed, um, and would be able to go out and complete that work uh, much more quickly than the enforcement staff that has limited resources. Um, you know, 
right now you have six cases in the IARP. I think the, the first case, uh, which was Memphis, went in, I believe, in early 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and we still don't have a resolution on it. I should mention, though, that the NCAA Board of Governors came out, I believe, two or three days ago and said that they expect resolutions in all six cases in the next 12 months, which would be um, a, a pretty strong achievement on their end. Right. Yeah. So picking up the pace a little bit, um, still not as fast as some folks may like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, how have institutions kind of responded to these changes in enforcement practices? Do you think that um, you know more people are, are kind of eyeing this this uh, different process, maybe wanting to their cases to go through this, or, or are they kind of holding back? So it's it's been a mixed bag. Um, mm-hmm. I think some institutions, especially early on. Uh, we're wary of the increased penalties and lack of an appellate option, as they should have been. Um, you know, it was very difficult to advise an institution to go into the process, um, not knowing how that was going to shake out ultimately. Um, but lately, uh, we've actually seen more institutions seeming willing and ready to go into the process, believing that they'd have a better shot proving basically a negative in front of the um, independent resolutions panel as opposed to the Committee on Infractions. Um, I think more recently, uh, both Kansas and Louisville uh, have gone into the process with Louisville saying that they thought they couldn't get a fair shake from the Committee on Infractions and were hopeful that the IARP would would provide them um, a more neutral uh, body to hear their case. So, mm-hmm. um, again, early on, I don't think schools really wanted to be in it. They saw it as, as overly punitive, uh, but I think more schools are open to it uh, as well. And, and then beyond that, um, a lot of institutions have utilized the, this kind of opening uh, to reinvestigate certain uh, elements of the cases, uh, to work with the complex case unit to to kind of point out problems with initial investigations or with enforcement staff decisions. Um, and I think they've had some success doing that. So uh, I think more schools are willing to um, kind of rely on this this independent body to to make what they think are, are better or more fair decisions. Sure, definitely. Um, I guess, are there any best practices that athletic departments uh, can deploy when it comes to compliance issues? Anything that, um, you know, would be good standard practice across the board? Uh, the, the list is long and, and, and there, are, there are certainly bodies that, that deal with those. The ones that um, I see more often in, in, in my practice are documentation um, and being proactive. I, I, I say documentation, I really mean uh, when I get in front of a committee on infractions or the uh, IRP body, um, I want to be able to show them, not just tell them all the good things that an institution has done uh, to, to uh, promote compliance, to uh, teach their coaches the right way of doing things, to make sure the student athletes are aware of the rules and how to comply with them. Um, you know, it's one thing to have a compliance officer walk into the room and tell the, uh, the, the body what they're doing, the enforcement staff what they're doing. It's another to have a, a stack of documents that shows, hey, here's what we had this meeting on X date. Here's who attended. Here's what we said. Um, here's them asking questions afterwards. And here's our response. Being right. able to show that that complex machinery of compliance in motion um, is really helpful when you're trying to demonstrate to one of these bodies that an institution takes compliance seriously, uh, has done all the right things to, to, uh, to keep on the straight and narrow. Um, the other element is, is being proactive, and, and really that boils down to uh, if you see a problem, you need to get in front of it. Um, if, if you see a problem coming down the road, even if you don't have it currently, you need to get in front of it because uh, the worst thing in the world in the compliance um, world is, is working from behind, it is having a problem and not having a plan for dealing with it, um, for having a problem and letting it sit and fester 
um, and not, you know, finding a violation and reporting it. Um, a lot of the worst issues we deal with um, are uh, institutions who have an infraction um, who kind of allow it to, to sit. Um, you know, a lot of these issues, every school is going to have an infraction. A lot of these issues are relatively minor. Um, and they only get to become bigger issues uh, if, if you don't deal with them right away. So being proactive, getting out there um, and, and, and kind of making sure that you're on top of, of the information coming in and the next rule going out and, and whatever that may be. I think that's generally good advice, not just when it comes to NCAA compliance, <laughs> but across the board. You know, one of the things that they kept telling me in journalism school was show, don't tell. And, you know, generally speaking, it just makes sense to address problems early uh, before they become bigger problems. So I think that's yes. great advice. Um, but let's say let's we're going to head into hypothetical uh, territory here. Uh, in the event that some athletic department, hypothetical uh, athletic department, finds itself accused of compliance uh, violations, what are some of the first steps they should take to kind of address those? Sure, you know, as outside counsel, I can't recommend involving outside counsel um, anymore. The mm -hmm. um, uh, you know one of the things that we have is the ability to interface with the enforcement staff. Um, allow them to know that, hey, we're on top of this. We're going to take a look at the, uh, the information um, and, and we'll report back with, with what we found. Um, kind of allowing uh, outside counsel to be involved in that process early on means that you can get through some of these problems quicker. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, again, part of being proactive. Um, you know, outside counsel can also tell you that this is an issue you can probably solve on your own. Uh, we take an initial look at it um, and we can, we can say, here's, you know, here's my advice about how to handle this. Uh, you all go gather these documents, you go take these interviews, um, and then we'll work with you in, in, in putting something together for the enforcement staff or whoever we need mm -hmm. to report. So I think involving outside counsel quickly uh, is a good step. Um, the other uh, thing that I would, I would mention is, is making sure that, uh, again, kind of harping on my documentation uh, issue previously, is, is making sure you have everything gathered and, and put together. Um, what schools typically run into is, is kind of a mad dash of, of answering questions from the enforcement staff. And what we would like to do, and what we would like our clients to do, is to have a stack of documents that says, all right, here's what we knew, here's what we did, and here's our solution. Um, right. And be able to put all that together really makes, um, you know, kind of really makes this enforcement process work better. Sounds like uh, some really sound advice. Um, any final thoughts? Any any anything that we maybe haven't touched on in our conversation today that uh, our listeners should know about um, this new process or NCAA compliance? No, I. In in terms of the IARP, one of the things that we've been seeing just generally throughout the process uh, is that schools are involving um, folks with litigation backgrounds more often. Um, mm -hmm. You know, our firm does both uh, litigation, general civil litigation, and and, and white collar criminal defense. Um, and we tend to bring those skills, those litigation skills to bear in the infractions process. Mm -hmm. More schools are, are hiring out um, for folks with that kind of skill because you're facing off in the CCU with uh, an independent investigator, somebody, uh, usually a lawyer, um, who does this work professionally and also a seasoned advocate. Um, and one of the differences between the IARP and the traditional enforcement staff is that uh, the procedures are a little bit more like a trial than a uh, than a traditional committee on infractions hearing, where in a committee on infractions hearing, you'll have basic presentation of, you know, here's the allegation, here's what evidence we think supports it. And there is some opportunity for advocacy in that. Uh, the CCU really involves more 
um, you know, more trial-like procedures where you're, you, know, you may even bring in a witness to speak at the hearing. There, um, there may be uh, ways in which you could, prior to a hearing, um, you know, write a document or a motion, for lack of a better word, that, that, that resolves issues early on. And so um, those kind of skills are becoming more and more important in this new process. Um, and that's doubly important for institutions who are facing off with a, uh, a heightened penalty structure um, and that lack of an appeal. Those are, those are two things where if you can get ahead of, of, of those issues um, you know, by bringing someone uh, in who has the experience and, and the skill uh, to really work up, work up an infractions case, that, that'll be more helpful. Well, it's certainly a dynamic time uh, when it comes to the NCAA in general. Um, so it's, it's going to be really interesting over the next couple of years to see how all, everything that's happening, the shifting landscape when it comes to the NCAA will continue to evolve. Um, Brian Kappel, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jason. All right. All right welcome back to the show. Uh, not much in the way of housekeeping this week. We do have a new issue that should be hitting mailboxes this week, though. So be on the lookout for the May issue of Athletic Business if you are uh, a subscriber. And if you would like to become a subscriber, uh, do feel free to check out athleticbusiness.com. There you can find links to subscribe, and we'll make sure to include one of those in the show notes as well if you'd like to receive our award-winning print publication. Um, but that is going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Business Podcast. Thanks so much to Brian Kappel, and thanks so much to you for listening. If you liked the show, do please give it a rating or review and uh, recommend it to a colleague. But until next time, take it easy.